All right, we are in the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 22 through 35. Please open your Bible or navigate on your phone or your tablet or other device to that portion of Scripture. Mark 3, verses 22 through 35. The topic, Jesus likens his display of power and authority over the devil to binding a strong man in order to enter his house and plunder his goods. The title of our message, It's a Plunderful Life. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the, um, the joy of being together with brothers and sisters in the Lord, singing from our heart praises, Lord, that belong to you, and now sitting at your feet, as it were, as the Holy Spirit teaches us from the word of God, which is alive and powerful, able to divide between our soul and our spirit and speak to us in our inner person. Do everything that you intend to do this morning. Help us not to get in your way. We ask it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. How many of you have the transcript and you're following it right now? Raise your hand. A few of you. All right. You are going to sing with me. Ready? Yo ho, yo ho, a pirate's life for me. I can't hear you. We pillage, we plunder, we rifle and loot. Drink up, me hearties, yo ho. We kidnap and ravage and don't give a hoot. Drink up, me hearties, yo ho. Nice. Very nice. To which we all say, "Arr." All right. It isn't National Pirate Day. The word plunder, however, is going to be prominent in the verses that we're going to discuss today. Jesus uses the word twice to describe his confrontations with the devil. Is Jesus a pirate? Well, of course not. But since we almost can't help but associate this word plunder with pirates, I thought it best to get all that out of our system right at the beginning. And so that's what we just did. So from this point on, don't think pirates, don't hum that tune. In a very descriptive illustration, Jesus says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then he will plunder his house. Satan is the strong man Jesus was describing. His house is the world. His goods are primarily human beings whom he holds captive and whips mercilessly as slaves. Jesus claimed he had bound Satan in order to free those who were held captive. He more than claimed it. He demonstrated it by casting out demons and by making people whole. Mark then adds a passage about Jesus' mother and brothers. Seems a little out of place at first, but it isn't. It's right where it belongs because in those verses, Jesus talks about those who constitute his spiritual family, who live in what the Bible elsewhere calls the household of faith. And so we'll look at both the devil's house and the household of faith. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, houses to plunder await you in the world. And number two, a household of wonder equips you in the Lord. Let's take a look at the houses we have to plunder, verses 22 through 30. Jesus had been putting on a mighty display of power and authority over demons by casting them out of any and all who he encountered who were possessed. Jesus also encountered folks whose afflictions were attributed directly to the devil. He healed them. No one could deny the results. People were set free and made whole. You'd think the universal reaction to ending so much human suffering would be rejoicing, but it wasn't. In verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub. 
by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. Now notice these scribes were from Jerusalem. The local scribes had not had any success refuting Jesus, so they radioed headquarters for help. And so these are the big guns. These are, the, these are the, the scribes of the scribes, as it were. The religious leaders were no help to the common people. In fact, in one place, Jesus says they made things worse by heaping burdens upon already burdened people than offering them no help in bearing them. We want to be careful, and by we I mean the church and individual Christians, we want to be careful not to burden people. It's so easy to do. There's always a, a good cause. There's always something that we want to get accomplished. There's, there's always some vision or a project. And, and it would be good for people to be involved with it, but we have to be careful not to pressure people. If you don't want to do something because you love the Lord and are ministered to by the Lord and can't help yourself, then we don't want to pressure you into doing anything. It should be enough to realize the Lord's love. We don't want to be, again, by we, I mean our church and us as individual Christians, we don't want to be people who pressure people and, and heap burdens on them that, that we're not able to help them bear and that they weren't really meant to bear. Now, it's one thing to not have the ability to cast out demons and heal those afflicted by them. You can't blame the scribes for that. But it's just wrong to oppose the person who was going about doing those things. They had such a hatred for Jesus that they overlooked the incredible good that he was doing for everyone in the name of the Father. Now, faced with the facts, they came up with the idea that Jesus has Beelzebub. The phrasing means they thought he must himself be working for Beelzebub, whom they understood to be the ruler of the demons. Now, there are a ton of interpretations regarding just who Beelzebub really was and what the name really means. If you Google it or look it up in a Christian resource, there's a lot of different uh, varieties of, of what this means and where it comes from. All you need to know is that the Jews in the first century used the name as a description for the person they called the ruler of the demons. Now by ruler, and this is important, they didn't necessarily mean that Beelzebub controlled the demons. The word can mean that he was the most powerful of the demons. And so they recognized Beelzebub as a super powerful demon uh, more powerful than all the other demons. The scribes were suggesting that there was a conflict among the demons with Beelzebub on the offensive against lesser demons. He was, they argued, using Jesus to vanquish lesser demons. Now the truth is, the Jews had a very limited knowledge of things demonic. In their scriptures, in what we know as the Old Testament, references to Satan and to demons do not really appear together in a single passage. It's not at all clear that Satan is the leader of the demons. If you only had the Old Testament, you have a very limited understanding of who Satan is and of how he operates with or against demons. The New Testament takes it for granted there's a close relationship between Satan and demons. They're frequently represented as a hierarchy 
over which Satan is the absolute ruler. But a first century scribe might have thought Beelzebub was making a move on other demons, casting them out so that he could take over their realm and move in in their place. Thus, the scribes were ignorant, but they were not stupid. This accusation made sense to them. And I only point that out because I I myself have taught and I've only ever heard taught that these guys were grabbing at straws. They were just being stupid. Oh, Satan's casting out Satan by Satan. But in reality, they were acting on the theology that they had from the Old Testament. And their accusation is far more sinister than you might understand at first. In the mind of the average Jew of that period, with their limited knowledge of demons, what the scribes were accusing Jesus of could actually make sense. It wasn't stupid at all. If you didn't know anything about Satan's relationship to the demons, and they said, well, he's got Beelzebub, the the, most powerful demon, and he's waging war against other demons to set up a new demonic kingdom, you'd buy that. You would swallow that. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Now packed into this opening question is a totally new demonology for the Jews. The study of demons would just be called demonology. This was completely new, revolutionary, and it's encapsulated in just a few words. Jesus said that the demon they were calling the prince of the demons is none other than Satan and that the demons Jesus had been casting out are under Satan's direct authority. How can Satan, the ruler of the demons, cast out Satan, the other demons he has authority over? It's an incredibly concise demonology that would uh, change years of thinking in the mind of the average Jew. We take all this for granted because we have the complete Bible, but this is revolutionary to Judaism. Jesus, of course, had inside information about all this. He had been, uh, rather, he had seen Satan fall from heaven and take one-third of the angels with him in his rebellion. He spoke with authority about that realm. He knew exactly what was going on in the demonic realm. And so then he goes on and he says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is at an end. There was no demonic hostile takeover in progress. There was instead a single satanic kingdom ruled over by the devil and administrated by his loyal subordinate demons. Not only was there no kingdom-wide civil war, there was no insubordination at the house level, meaning that individual demons who possessed and afflicted people were totally loyal to Satan. There are any number of uh, movies and fantasies where they try and portray things going on with angels and demons, and there's always a rogue angel or a rogue demon that are trying to mess things up. And, you know, somebody's trying to take over Satan's kingdom or one of the angels is working with the dead. Jesus is saying none of that happens. There's Satan and his demons on one side... It's a kingdom, and at the individual level, if somebody's possessed by one or a thousand demons, they're not looking to rebel. They're all on one team, and then there's me on the other side. And that's what he's getting at. 
Jesus' power and authority was not from Satan, not from Beelzebub rising up against himself. It was from Jesus having power and authority over the devil and his kingdom given to him by God the Father as he ministered on the earth. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then he will plunder his house. Now, it helps our appreciation of this illustration to know that one of the possible definitions of Beelzebub is master of the house. The Jews were right. There was a master of the house, but it wasn't Jesus. It was Satan. And so Jesus portrayed himself as the one who could and did bind Beelzebub, the master of the house. Just exactly when did Jesus bind Satan? I trace it back to the temptation in the wilderness where Jesus in one-on-one champion versus champion combat defeated Satan. He emerged victorious from there and every time he encountered a demon or a legion of them, he cast them out, proving that the strong man was bound. Jesus didn't do anything miraculous until after his baptism and after his baptism with the Holy Spirit. I think I've told you already there's a movie coming out. It is a Christian film made by sincere Christians, I'm sure, about Jesus' youth. It should only be 10 minutes long because we only have a couple of episodes from Jesus' youth in the Bible. We have a lot of stupid, apocryphal stories about Jesus as a boy. Uh, One of them, I didn't believe this, but I finally had to look it up. He would find dead sparrows and touch them and then they would come to life. And so I'm watching the trailer for this movie. I forget the name of it. And this little boy is holding a sparrow and I thought, no! It's going to give a completely false representation of the work of Jesus Christ. And so don't go see it. And if you do go see it, because now I've piqued your curiosity, don't ask me any questions about it. I have no answer for you because you shouldn't have seen it in the first place. I'm going to ask you to repent. (laughs) I'm a little bit, uh, well, actually, I'm serious. Uh, (laughs) So, having bound Satan, having defeated him, Jesus could plunder his house. Every person freed from possession or demonic affliction was plunder. He He or she was a recovered spoil of spiritual war that Jesus had removed from Satan's influence and control and set free. Is Satan bound today? That's a great question. Sadly, no, he's not. He is presented in the New Testament as the God of this age. He's called the prince of the power of the air. We're clearly told that he goes about as a roaring lion seeking people to devour. We're told that people are taken captive by him to do his will. What happened? How did he escape his binding by Jesus? Did Jesus not know how to tie knots properly? Or, you know, what was it? Well, he was let loose because the Jewish leaders ultimately rejected Jesus as their savior and as the Messiah. Jesus called it the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Let's see it in verse 28. Surely I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. Now, these words strike fear into the hearts of sincere believers. Christians wonder if they have committed this terrible sin. Have they? Can they? 
Well, let's look at what Jesus meant, first of all, in context. You always, when studying the Bible, I, I know you know this, you want to keep it in its original context. What did it originally mean to the hearers? Well, remember that Jesus was offering to inaugurate the kingdom of God on the earth that had been promised to Israel. He went about preaching repentance from sin because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He was going to inaugurate the kingdom. God the Father sent John the Baptist to prepare the nation for the coming of their Messiah. Multitudes of the common people responded to John's call and repented, but not the religious leaders. They permitted John to be arrested and eventually killed. God the Son then came as promised, and he called the nation to repent, but those same religious leaders asked for Jesus to be killed, and they arranged for it to be done. The Holy Spirit came next at Pentecost, empowering Jesus' disciples. How did those same religious leaders respond? They arrested the apostles, ordered them to keep silent, and then they eventually killed Stephen, stoning him to death. Stephen said this, You do always resist the Holy Spirit. They had sinned against the Father. They had sinned against the Son. They had been graciously forgiven and the kingdom was still being offered to them. But when they sinned against the Holy Spirit, they had hardened their hearts to a point of no repentance and there could be no forgiveness. The Apostle Paul would say to them about this point of no return at the end of the book of Acts, this is from Acts 28, the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our father saying, go to this people and say, hearing you will hear and shall not understand, seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their eyes are hard of hearing, or excuse me, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. Israel's leaders had thereby blasphemed the work of the Holy Spirit, hardening their hearts to a place they would not repent. And the offer of the kingdom was off the table. So God the, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all working with the nation of Israel nationally through their leadership to bring the promised kingdom through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and they kept refusing and kept refusing and kept refusing until it got to the point of no return where they would not ever repent. And so the Lord said, you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And now there's gonna be a change. And we see that change in the history of, of the gospel. Paul says the gospel is now gonna go out in a different way. It goes out in the book of Acts to Jew and Gentile, and what happens? The church is born. The church is created. And the church goes on until the second coming of Jesus Christ. Satan was thereby released and we enter the church age until that second coming. That second coming is preceded by the resurrection and rapture of the church and the seven-year tribulation on the earth. At the second coming, so interesting, one of the first things that happens, Satan is taken into custody and he is bound and imprisoned for the thousand-year duration of the kingdom of heaven on earth. And so Jesus said, I've bound Satan. Here's the kingdom. They said, we don't want your king kingdom. Satan's let loose. Jesus comes a second time. He says, I'm establishing the kingdom, like it or not, and I'm going to bind Satan while I do it for a thousand years. And so in context, it was Israel's leadership who committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit 
by ultimately utterly rejecting Jesus, attributing to the Holy Spirit the works of the devil as their defense. Scholars debate whether or not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a sin that can be committed today. Many good Bible teachers that we would respect and enjoy say that it cannot be committed today because it involved Israel as a nation rejecting the Messiah, and that's something that is not repeatable, and we are not Israel. And so they say this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit only could occur when it was, the kingdom was being offered Israel. Evangelicals who say the sin still can be committed typically explain that since the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a total final rejection of Jesus, it is committed when a person dies without receiving Jesus as their Savior. Since it is the work of the Holy Spirit to bear witness to every human heart of their need for salvation and the provision of the Savior, when a person dies without Jesus, they have effectively blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They've hardened their heart over and over again, and then they die, and they're past the point of no return. It's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. I wish it was appointed unto men once to die, and after this, purgatory. I actually wish that were true, because many people I know and you know, family members and loved ones, could at least be suffering in purgatory and work off their sins, but that's not what the Bible teaches. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this comes judgment. It's too late once you die to receive Christ. If you're not a believer this morning, it's going to be too late for you to receive Jesus Christ in the afterlife. You'll be in a place of temporary torment, headed for a place of eternal conscious torment. And Jesus knew that. Pastor and author Warren Wiersbe, an author we respect, wrote this. He said, the only sin today God cannot forgive is the rejection of his son. When the Spirit of God convicts the sinner and reveals the Savior... The sinner may resist the Holy Spirit and reject the witness of the Word of God. That does not mean he has forfeited all opportunities to be saved. If he will repent and believe, God can still forgive him. Even if the sinner so hardens his heart that he seems to be insensitive to the pleadings of God, so long as there is life, there is hope. Only God knows if and when any deadline has been crossed. You and I must never despair of any sinner. Those of you who got saved later in life, there were times when you could be accused of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You heard the gospel and turned away from it. But while there was life, there was hope. And one day you went to church or listened to your friend or read the book or watched television and the Holy Spirit was ministering to you and your eyes were opened and you received Christ. And so if you want to argue and say, no, I believe the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit can be committed before people die, that's fine too. But we don't know when that is. Maybe God knows where that line has been drawn. Maybe he can look at my heart and say, you will never repent. You've already passed that point while you're still alive. But you and I don't know that. And so we continue to give the gospel, the power of God unto salvation to all who we encounter. And that brings us to an application of these verses to us today. The world is the devil's kingdom. Everywhere we look, there are houses in which he holds people captive. Their lives are full of misery for lack of the knowledge and presence of God, and they're on a slippery path leading to an eternity separated from God, suffering eternal conscious torment. Now, you might look at people who are not saved and think they're doing pretty well. Maybe they're better off than you. Maybe they even seem happier than you. All right, where are they headed? They're headed to a place of unhappiness, of severe unhappiness. And, you know, they're only going to live 
what, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years? And then there's an eternity to consider. And so these people, they, they're miserable and they don't even know it because of what awaits them. Satan is not bound, but we are told, what? Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We can therefore still be used to plunder. In fact, it's our mission to plunder the strong man's house and set free those that he holds captive. The gospel, as I've said three times this morning, is the power of God to salvation. First, it is the power by which a person is saved. God's grace works on the heart to free the will in order that a person might make a decision for Jesus Christ. And then it is the power of being indwelt by God the Holy Spirit to live a life that is pleasing to God, life as it was meant to be lived. You plunder houses by living for Jesus, by being Christ-like, and by encouraging others to have their sins forgiven and to be saved while they still have the opportunity. I told you, I think, a couple of weeks ago that our youth have been going out on the first and third Saturdays of the month and sharing the gospel uh, out in the community. They texted me yesterday afternoon and said another four individuals gave their lives to Jesus Christ during that time. Always clap. Always clap. Uh, it's a big deal. And so this, and you know what, those four individuals, whoever they were, they are spoiled. They are plunder. We went into the devil's house, as it were, the world, their situation, however you want to define that, and captured them away from Satan for the kingdom of light. And if they were sincere and if they really received the Lord, and we have no reason to think they didn't, they are saved forever. They are always going to be with the Lord. I, I don't know... Man, that's better than dressing up as a pirate. <laughs> that kind of plunder is fantastic. And you get rewarded for it too. And by the way, if you attend our church, get this. You get rewarded for those souls even though you didn't go. Because we're all part of it and we all share equally in that. Isn't that wonderful? And that's why I say a household of wonder equips you in the Lord. The remaining five verses of chapter three seem tacked on. They seem almost out of place. They seem like a footnote, but I think we'll see otherwise. Earlier in the chapter, Mark had said that when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him for they said he's out of his mind. And the word doesn't mean he needed to rest. It means they thought he was insane. He left off from that to describe the Beelzebub controversy. Now Mark returns to it to let us know that his own people were members of Jesus' own birth family. Now I suggest to you there's more here than a clarification. Jesus said something radical that resonates throughout the entire church age. Verse 31, then his brothers and his mother came and standing outside they sent to him calling him. Who are these brothers? Well, I told you last week that there's a disagreement between Protestants and Roman Catholics over their identity. The Roman Catholic Church teaches the perpetual virginity of Mary. They say she never had sex with her husband, Joseph, that she never had any other children. They argue that this word for brothers can mean other relatives like cousins. So they say these people were Jesus' cousins because obviously Mary never had any other children. We say it is extra-biblical and absurd to say that Mary remained a virgin. These are Jesus' brothers, the children born to Joseph and Mary after the Lord was born. By the way, the Catholic Church also teaches the Immaculate Conception of Mary. They mean that Mary, even though born of human parents, was conceived somehow without original sin 
or it's stained. That's what the word immaculate means. It means without stain. It's very important for Catholics to see Mary as without original sin, as a virgin, because they go on to teach eventually that she is a co-redeemer with Jesus Christ. Jesus and Mary are necessary for your salvation in the Roman church. Now, the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew both state that James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon were the brothers of Jesus. Those same verses, Mark 6.3 and Matthew 13.55, also mention unnamed sisters of Jesus. So not only he had brothers and sisters, he had a lot of them. Another verse in the letter to the Galatians mentions seeing James, the Lord's brother. The brothers of the Lord are also mentioned alongside but separate from Peter and the apostles in 1 Corinthians 9. Regarding Mary, this is the only place in the Gospel of Mark where she is seen. She comes with Jesus' brothers because they believe he has gone insane. This is an attempted mental health intervention. I live in fear of intervention. Every time somebody invites me someplace that's a little bit weird or they start going down the wrong street, I think this is it. I'm going to walk in and there's going to be a group of my peers and they're going to intervene and I don't even know what I've done. After first service, brother came up and he says, well, it could be almost anything. Could be in and out could be Disneyland, could be coffee. So I'm not getting in anybody's car anymore. Mary didn't understand not fully who Jesus was and what was his mission. Obviously, at this point, she was not yet a believer. She was not saved. Even if you want to concede, which you don't, that these may have been cousins, Mary comes off badly as a non-believer who was seeking to undermine the gospel. Jesus' family members could not press through the crowd. Even though they were family, no preferential treatment was shown to them. They got a message to Jesus. I wonder how this worked out. It reminds me of the telephone game, you know, where you whisper in somebody's ear. Uh, but they did a pretty good job of preserving the original message. But I, I, you should try this sometime, see how it comes out the other end. But the multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Mom and the boys had come. It would seem natural for Jesus to take a break, take five, see his family. But you have to remember that everything surrounding Jesus was strategic in a spiritual warfare. In this case, to yield to his family, even momentarily, could be construed by Jesus' enemies as showing they were right and that he was indeed one brick shy of a full load, two rungs short of a ladder, not playing with a full deck. I think you get the idea. Don't make no mistake about it. They were accusing him of insanity. But he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brothers? Now that's unexpected. It put the crowd on alert that following Jesus meant a change in your attitude towards natural family ties. It's one thing for a disciple to leave everything to follow Jesus, but he had only called upon 12 guys to do that out of the multitudes. I'm sure everyone else thought life was business as usual with family always coming first. And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. Now, these are radical words in any culture, but certainly in the Jewish culture. Jesus wasn't advocating abandoning family, but he was making it clear that the will and the work of God takes priority even over family. Now, let me take a moment to qualify that before we misunderstand it. 
Too often people use this as an excuse to ignore their responsibilities to their families. Pastors and Christian workers especially get so into the ministry, uh, ministering to others, that they neglect their family. Let me let you in on something that uh, is kind of a secret. It's easier to minister to other people than it is to minister to your own family. You know why? Your own family knows what a doofus you are. That's why. (laughs) They have to really, really have faith to understand that you're who you think you are. Other people say, well, you're the pastor, you're the elder, you're the deacon, you're the worship leader, you're the whatever Sunday school teacher, you're super spiritual. And they only see you in whatever setting they see you in, usually just on Sunday mornings and, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, and so uh, people get intoxicated by ministry because they're always getting, act- oh, you helped me so much. Oh, your words were so brilliant. And you go home and where's dinner? What are we doing? What are we going to eat tonight? You know, that kind of stuff. And, and so it's like, oh, I, I have to minister. I have to go out and do the ministry. So they forget, and it's easy to forget that treating your wife like Jesus treats the church, raising your kids in the Lord, is ministry. Jesus' comments are not an excuse to disobey the clear teaching of the Bible about the home. A better application of this is to consider your own non-believing family. Jesus was talking about his family, which was at the time non-believers. Mary and his brothers and his sisters didn't believe he was the Messiah. And so that's what he was talking about. Are you willing to take a stand for Jesus in your non-believing family? Will you do the will and work of God or are you prone to spiritual compromise because after all, that's my family. What am I supposed to do? Everybody must answer those questions for themselves. Just be honest in asking and answering them. Don't underestimate the pressure of your family and the fact that they can be used by the devil to undermine your witness for the Lord. It happens all the time. A family stands in the way. If you have non-believers in your family, uh, they are going to be used, taken captive by the devil to try and hinder you at some point in doing the will or the work of God. On the plus side, as a believer in Jesus, you gain a whole new family. When you're saved, you're born again. With that spiritual birth comes membership in the family of God, brothers and sisters and mothers galore. Have you been accused by your natural family of loving believers more than them? I hope you have. It's not that you love believers more than your natural family. It's that you love them differently. You're able to love them with a pure love, with a spiritual love, because you and I are all members of one body. We're connected together by the indwelling Holy Spirit in a way that we are not with our natural family. I love my natural family, but I am much closer to almost any believer than I am to my natural family. And I hope you've been accused of being crazy or of loving Christians more than your family because you know what? Then it shows. The truth of your life shows. Now notice Jesus doesn't mention fathers, although it's okay to see certain believers as spiritual fathers to you, especially if they were used to bring you to Jesus Christ. The Lord is emphasizing that we all have one father, his father, our father, God the Father. Our new spiritual family is the church, not the building, of course, but the believers. Isn't that wonderful? 
Maybe you're a single mom. You're not alone. You've got believers to come alongside to be sisters and brothers and mothers. You can have as much or as little of their help as you want or need simply by living in community with others in the church. It's fantastic. I'm calling the church a household of wonder. The more you think about it, the more you too will see the wonder of our relationship with Jesus Christ and with one another in a spiritual community that you had no idea existed. I know, I know, you've been burned or spurned somewhere along the line by some church or some pastor or some Christian worker or just some Christian in the church you attended. Maybe it happened here. Maybe it's happening right now. If you haven't had this happen to you, you know somebody who has, and they don't go to church anymore because of it. Of course that happens. It's bound to happen because the church is filled with flawed people, including and sometimes especially me and you. Here's something to consider. I think the average Christian would agree with the statement that we need to be more like the first century church. Man, you read about the church in the first century, they were blowing the doors out attendance-wise, thousands of people getting saved, preaching the gospel, miracles, signs, wonders. Man, let's get back to that. Then you read the letters that Paul and the boys wrote to the first century church, and guess what? All of them are corrections because of weird stuff going on in the church because of weird Christians like you and me. Even to Thessalonica, which was a pretty pure church, Paul had to write and say, you've got some deadbeats in your church who think the Lord's coming means they don't have to work. They can just hang around and eat lunch with you every day. And he said to them, if you don't work, you don't eat. It was a big problem. I don't know if you've ever known a deadbeat. I don't know if you've ever been a deadbeat. It's a big problem. But there are other real huge problems. Man, if you want to find some problems, read 1 Corinthians. There are so many problems in that church. You, You and I would look at that today and say, I wouldn't go there. Man, if they're not suing you, they're living with their father's wife, they're, you know, doing all kinds of crazy spiritual stuff over here, they're getting drunk at communion. How is this even a church? And yet we're thinking, I want to get back to the first century church. Yeah, not that one. But you know what? All churches are like that. All churches have problems because all churches have people. But guess what? Work through it. God has provided all the necessary equipment. And what a wonder they are. Repentance, forgiveness, grace, mercy in abundance, prayer, the word of God, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is where you're equipped in the house of wonder where, and you've experienced this, where bitterness is removed from you, where forgiveness flows into you and then through you, where you show mercy to people, where you love people who you hated. It's all spiritual. The household of faith. We are told to not forsake assembling ourselves together as the church. It's where we come together to get equipped, to go out and be able to more effectively plunder the strong man's goods. Make no mistake about it. Your neighbors and friends who are not Christians are held captive by the devil and either now or later they're going to experience a pain that knows no end. They need to be rescued. So yes, it is a plunderful life as we get equipped to go out and evangelize setting free those held captive by the devil. Let's pray.